Hello, hello, hello. Testing, testing, testing. Check one, check two. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and whatever else comes after that. All right, so this episode is going to be a rather Funny long. One. Yeah, it's going to be very light, very humorous. Yeah. Um, this will be about, you know, five minute long episode. Not a whole lot of detail, not a whole lot of, you know, historical events or anything. Right. It's called the, the Vietnam segment. Yes. So, honey, I've been thinking about this, uh, and it's interesting because this part of my life intersects with a whole bunch of stuff that came before, certainly the experience when I was there, and then the impact and effect that uh, that experience is, like so many others, the impact that's had on me uh, after the fact. So... um, the, we'll start out with, the, I think we've talked a little bit about this in other segments, but the bottom line or the, 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 the fundamental point is I, I did sign up and joined the United States Marine Corps in the summer of 1967, and I went through a, a boot camp and then the training and artillery school to become an artilleryman, and then I served, was, was sent to and served in Vietnam with uh, an artillery battery, a uh, 105 millimeter howitzer battery um, for 13 months. I think it was actually 13 months to the day. I went over there in, um, I think, end of, end of January, early February. I can't remember the dates. And I came back 13 months later. Then because the Marine Corps was starting to uh, scale down in Vietnam, uh, and I only had five months left on my, on my enlistment period, uh, I was given an early out. So ironically, or interestingly enough, uh, I actually only served 19 months of active duty um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Marine Corps, and then I was, I was out at home. We'll come back to all of that. But before we kind of walk through that, I, I kind of want to put it in perspective um, because the Vietnam War, in, in some perspective, both as to what its timeline was and how that intersected really with the timeline of, of not just my life, but uh, several hundred thousand other uh, young men, mostly young men, although there were women who, who fought and some who died uh, in Vietnam in a combat situation. Um, so let's just go back a little bit and do a, a, a teeny bit of history, and it's pretty pretty basic overview. Uh, but we started um, sending people to the Republic of Vietnam, or to, to Vietnam, more or less around 54, 55. That was still in the Eisenhower administration. And I think they were there for, as observers and as, as advisors. Uh, there were little, if any, few, if any, casualties in that, in that early stage. I think actually the first casualty in Vietnam was a homicide from one um, U.S. Uh, military person to another. They were fighting over some other issue, and one of them, got, one of them shot the other one. That was, that was essentially the first casualty, or technically the first casualty in Vietnam. So I was in high school, same time as your, your, your grandma Susie, I was in high school from 1962 to 1966. And in 1962, the war in Vietnam just wasn't much of a, of a news item or of interest or an issue with most of us, certainly as a freshman in high school, it didn't mean anything to me practically. It was something I may have heard briefly in the news, I had no connection to it or understanding of it, or even interest in that. I was interested in, 
and going to school and not flunking out and trying to try out for the football team and and uh, um, being intimidated by you know the upperclassmen and trying not to get stuffed into a garbage can with walking down the hall and things like that. And yet we were starting to put troops uh, into Vietnam as early as 1962. And it, during that year, the United States uh, sent over approximately 12,000 advisors somewhere in that, that timeline. And it jumped from that point to, to, to a point where in 1965, the United States had approximately 200,000 American combat troops in Vietnam. And so, and then in 66, the year I graduated, uh, there were approximately 500,000, half a million American, mostly men, boys, um, who were there in, in the combat situation. So when I graduated from high school in 66, it was certainly much more of an issue for me and uh, much more in my consciousness than when I started high school. We had to join, we had to sign up for the draft when we turned 18. I can't remember all the steps. I don't know if they gave me a deferment at that time or I was automatically deferred uh, from being drafted until I graduated from high school. I graduated from high school in 1966, and um, then I, I, I did sign up for a, a student or an educational deferment, which allowed me to stay out of the draft uh, until the deferment was up. In this case, it was for a year, and I was supposed to maintain 15 units of a C average grade per semester uh, to maintain my deferment. I did okay the first semester, and the second semester I maintained the 15 units, but uh, lo and behold, uh, by the end of that first year, I think my average, my grade average was a D triple plus, which meant that in 19, uh, now it meant that in 1967, I would have been drafted into the service because I lost my deferment because I was having way too much fun playing in a band and hanging out and sleeping half a day and, and uh, being a kind of a, a bum. Um, school was not top on my top priority, even though it might have should have been if I wanted to maintain that deferment. But I was having a good time with my buddies from high school, Rudy Martinez and Dick Leathers and Byron Cruz and Terry Fox and Steve Milanovich and Jimmy Miller and Johnny or Danny DeAnda, all those guys. We were having way too much fun to study too hard. So the reality sinks in. Um, and, I, and I think I told the story about uh, going out for a picnic with Sue. Um, uh, so by the summer of 67, I was in kind of an emotional, psychological state because I, by then I'd lost my deferment. And I think I told the story about going over to Woodland to try to talk the woman who was in charge of the draft for the county out of uh, reclassifying me from a student deferment, I think it was an S1, to a, um, a 1A uh, or a draft eligible. So I, I drove over to Woodland, and, and I had every, every uh, confidence, had all the confidence in the world that I was going to be able to talk her out of drafting me because I was a, a really a pretty good uh, BSer by then. And I'd been working on hard at that, that talent for a long time. And I went to see her, 
and I gave her my pitch, and I said, you know, I'm a young boy, a young man, and just starting school, and you know, I did, I did the 15 units each semester, and the first semester I had to see, second semester didn't quite make it, but you know, I was, I was kind of adjusting to college, and if you just give me another chance, I know that uh, you'll never see me again. I'll, I'll, I'll maintain my deferment, and I'll, I'll, finish, I'll finish college, and everybody be happy. And she just kind of looked at me and said, well, Mr. McGowan, I'm sorry, but I draft young men here every day who never got that chance you had. In other words, you only got one chance and you blew it. And guess what? You're gonna be reclassified and you're gonna get drafted into the army and you're gonna to go to Vietnam. So I was feeling sorry for myself. My dad was mad at me because I was kind of a bum. I wasn't working for him anymore. Uh, I was crying up, crying in my beer. Um, you, your grandma and I were dating, but I was kind of a lousy boyfriend because I was, you know, crying my crying my heart out and da 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 da. And so one day we were talking in the car, and I said something like, "You know, I'm so so tired of all these pressures on me that I think I'm just going to join the Marine Corps." Now, where that came from, I'm not exactly sure. I have some ideas about it. But again, it's like a 19-year-old's logic, which is not necessarily the best. So I turned her car around, and she said, oh, I'm tired of, okay, I said that. I might as well join the Marine Corps. And I'm hoping she's going to say, or figuring she's going to say, you know, um, you shouldn't do that, honey. We'll work this out. It'll be okay. Don't do anything rash. Instead, she says, I'm tired of hearing you bitching and moaning. You need to poop or get off the pot. What? Where is the sympathy? Where is the love? So I turned the car around. I said, oh, yeah. I turned the car around, and I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. She came in, sat in the waiting room, and I signed up. The good news is I knew they had this, <laughs> this two-year plan. Most of the guys that I met later in the Marine Corps signed up for four years because nobody told them there were options. So I signed up for two years. And um, I had to ask about it because the recruiter wasn't going to tell me because he got more bonus for the number of people he signed up and for the length of time that they signed up for. So the, one, of the, one of the more fortunate things about all that is I did get the two-year two -year enlistment, which, as I said before, meant that I went through training and went through Vietnam. When I got home to Vietnam, I got out. So... Um, so the 60s, for me and, and my friends, were, they were idyllic times until, until we had to face the reality of what comes after high school. <clears throat> our, high, <clears throat> excuse me, our high school years were idyllic almost. It was, I, I tell people, we, we were fortunate to be able to go through high school pre-pot. You know, I think the strongest uh, uh, stimulants we got came, in out of, came out of a red and white uh, tin can with a pop top on it. Um, we, we, no, none of my friends were into marijuana or any other kind of drugs. There were a few bad boys that would sniff glue, which was like suicidal, but not us. We didn't do that. Um, and our, we were all into our cars and we were into hanging out and going out on Friday and Saturday night, going to a dance, drinking some beer and, you know, trying not to get, you know, chewed out too much by our respective girlfriends. Interestingly enough, you know, Susie and I were dating and, um, Becky and Rudy were dating, Rudy Martinez and Becky Bozeman. 
and uh, and and also Steve Milanovic and Donna. They were all dating. We were all dating in high school, and we all got married to our our high school sweethearts. And two of the three uh, marriages are still intact. Of course, we still see Steve. We still see Donna, but they 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 remarried and went on in different ways. But it was a great time to grow up. That the pressures, the the pressure of the Vietnam War hadn't quite hit us yet. It started to be felt in 1966, our year of graduation, because all of the guys that we knew the year before, 65, were getting drafted, and, and most of them were going to Vietnam. Not all of them, some were going to Germany. So, um, it was a great time. I mean, it was, if, you, if you look back in some of the old movies about high school days in the 50s and the 60s, you know, like Grease, the movie Grease, it was pretty much like that. You know, we were defined by your group of friends, and, and um, um, your car and maybe your girlfriend and um, all that kind of stuff and it, it, they just you know we weren't we didn't think about going to school or college uh, the three options were to go to like a state school like Sac State those were the smart kids and then the other kids were like us Rudy and myself and those guys and we'd go to city college for two years and then the other third would go to work at a service station or an auto parts house and, and get married young and off they'd go so we were sort of in the middle course uh, but that all came to a, those plans all came to a, a screeching halt when when I knew I was going to get drafted and I joined. Now, the the environment in those days in West Sac about the war in Vietnam was an interesting one. Most of our parents, um, a lot of our parents, had served in the, in the army or the navy or merchant marines or something in World War II or Korea, mostly World War II, and th so there was a strong feeling of patriotism in West Sac. And the idea, for instance, of not going into the service, if you were called, just wasn't, it wasn't something we thought about. Certainly the Vietnam protests and the uh, protests against the war had begun in 1966, six, and certainly in 67. Um, but we didn't really think that we were, you know, we didn't think about that. We were just trying to do, you know, do what we could do. And then if you got drafted, you would go. No one really thought about not going. Uh, so that was sort of the political or the sociological environment. So when I decided to join, the, the reasonings were odd. Again, it's a 19-year-old's logic. And uh, we grew up, again, because of, the, of our backgrounds, we grew up sort of steeped in uh, adventure stories. Stories about you know Audie Murphy, who was the uh, high, most highly decorated soldier in World War II, and and uh, um, Ernest Hemingway books where he talked about you know being a man's being being tested by <clears throat> the challenge of warfare and and uh, you know how you rise to the level, rise to the occasion, etc. etc. The romanticized view of war, you know, a manly man's job. Um, and what happened to me is I'd, <clears throat> I'd gotten to know a couple guys at City College before I'd lost my deferment who had been in the service. And they hadn't gone to Vietnam because they were a little older, but they had great stories about being in the service. And there was something inside me that said that the Vietnam experience was going to be the events of my generation. And you either went or you didn't go. And I, I, I don't know how, I don't know where this came from, but I had a kind of an epiphany that someday I'd be 40 years old or 35 years old 
sitting around a table with other guys, and the guys from Vietnam, the guys from Vietnam, <coughs> excuse me, they'd have all the good stories. And, and if I just got drafted and went to Germany in the motor pool, I wouldn't have a very good story. It sounds totally crazy, but that was a that was a strong incentive for me to go. Uh, I didn't want to miss the great adventure of my generation, and I say that somewhat sarcastically because I was stupid. But that was kind of what was going on in my 19-year-old mind. I then got to live with that. Um, so I go to boot camp, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but I, within an hour or so, I came to the conclusion that I may have made a huge mistake and that this career choice was probably not the best one for me. And I also started to think about how can I break my own leg so I can get out of here? which I didn't do. But after a short period of time, I realized that all the yelling and the screaming and the thumping they did on you, they weren't, they weren't as, they didn't have the capacity to be as tough on me as my father had been at certain times in my life. And so I'm looking at these guys thinking, was that all you got? Is that as tough as this is? The old man's tougher than you guys. Now I wasn't an athlete, I was just, kind of a scrawny kid and, and I developed my gift of gab primarily because I realized I couldn't beat anybody up but if I could make them laugh or keep them engaged then they wouldn't they wouldn't beat me up and so I wasn't real physical but the physical part was hard for me in boot camp but it wasn't it wasn't I learned also that it was not designed for the most the most athletically prowess guy it was designed to be hard enough for the least but something that anybody could could a level anybody could reach and so I did so well in boot camp that I was I was uh, rewarded as as a squad leader, and I, I received a, a stripe. I got to be a, a first class private first class coming out of boot camp. Everybody else was just a private, a straight pri private. That was an, an honorary um, uh, promotion that I got out of boot camp, which they reserved for about ten percent. So I'm very proud of that. I still am. My dad came down and got to see that. I think I told that story. Uh, and, and that meant a lot to me. I didn't see the film of that till much later. So we go to boot camp, and then we did a, um, another kind of training called uh, ITR, or, uh, um, Infantry Training Regiment, for about three weeks. Came home for a 30-day leave, and then went back, to, went back and went through artillery school. Uh, and I was trained on a 105-millimeter howitzer, and when I got to Vietnam, I was, I was put into a battery. There were 10 of us that came from that artillery school and wound up at Foxtrot Battery, Foxtrot 211, 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, 11th Regiment, 1st Marine Division. And um, so we landed in Vietnam at the end of Tet of 68. Now, when I got there, there were like over 500,000 people. I got there in, 19, um, in 1968, uh, like February of 68. And there was what they called a Tet Offensive in 1968, where the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese um, actually got into the grounds of the American Embassy in Saigon. They overran um, parts of Saigon. They overran Da Nang. They overran uh, Way, and they made they, they they launched a massive assault and killed a lot of troops. And they lost a lot of people, and I got to Vietnam right at the end of that offensive, the Tet Offensive of 1968. And so it was, everybody was on high alert, high stress. It was nerve wracking. We were afraid we were gonna get shot at or attacked right away. And, and uh, fortunately we weren't. Uh, we were able to make it out to our battery. I think we got mortared out there fairly soon after I got 
gotten in there, but it wasn't, uh, nobody got hurt from that. So then I settled in to try to learn how to be a good field artilleryman, along with the, uh, nine other guys from my artillery school. And uh, <clears throat> how can I explain it? Or you asked, you were gonna ask me about the routine, uh, but I wanna talk about the transition maybe the mental transition or the emotional transition. So when I graduated from boot camp, that's when they gave you your, your MOS or your military occupation specialty. And by the time I graduated from boot camp, I was what they call gung-ho. I was, I was all in. I was all Marine. And I very much wanted to go into the infantry. And I was assigned to the artillery instead. And I was disappointed, and I asked my drill sergeant when he was reading out our, our giving us our assignments, and basically said, you're going to be 0811 artillery, field artilleryman, and you're going to Vietnam. And I was disappointed because I wanted to go into in the, in the infantry. And he said something was, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't understand, and he says, don't worry, McGowan, you're going to get all the action you want to see in an artillery battery. Don't, you know, you don't, don't. Don't sweat it. And when I got there, I saw how, how right he was, but also just how incredibly dangerous and, and, and um, challenging and uh, hard it was to be in the infantry. I, my, my, we were both in combat situations. We were both exposed to fire, but my, my service there, my time, my circumstances, as, as tough as they were, uh, were not as bad as having to be in the infantry. So he was right. And I was, I was fortunate, and I think, in that regard. Um, so we get the battery, and we start. Now we're starting our acclimation into uh, what it means to be, you know, a field artilleryman in this battery, battery Foxtrot battery. Um, I didn't know anything, and it was all learned by doing. There was very little. We had been trained with all the, t the technical stuff at stateside before we left. But the art of, of being an artilleryman didn't didn't uh, was not part of that, and we got that from the from the Marines that we, we hooked up with over there. Um, so, but let me tell you a funny story though before we go into anything else. I, one of my favorites. So, in the Marine Corps, they had this thing about you know we're not gonna we are not going to we are not going to spoil you, <laughs> we are not going to pamper you, and so we had like pardon my French, we had the shitty stuff. We had the older equipment. The Army had all this new stuff, and they had new uniforms, and they had camouflage uniforms, and we were wearing the old-fashioned uh, olive drab green, and uh, we had sea rats, uh, you know, can food, food in a can, and they had a mess tent, and we were sleeping outside on the ground, and they had tents with cots, and we could see them over there. They were, they were you know, they were down the road there, and, and it was like, geez, they've got it made. We'd have this warm beer to drink once in a while, and they had ice-cold beer, and so we were jealous, and, and it, but it worked. It actually worked to our advantage because it made us tougher, and it made us think that, well, you know, we're tougher than those guys. Look at the way they live. They got it made. They got it easy. And although we wanted some of those um, amenities in our life, uh, we were proud. But at any rate, one day the first sergeant comes around, and, and he says, men, he says, uh, I need you to go on a, on a, on a mission, and, and we go, okay, it's about four or five of us. And he goes, you need to go over to the Army base and see what you can find. Ah, okay, I know what that means. 
So it wasn't stealing. It was procurement. So he sends us over there, and we start grabbing everything we can. We grab field jackets, and it was cold. We were there in the wintertime. It was cold, actually. We were grabbing field jackets, and we were grabbing blankets. We were grabbing, you know, canteens and all kinds of stuff. And they all say U.S. Army on it. So we bring all this stuff back, and I've got a field jacket on. I think it says something like Sergeant Gomez. And so the first sergeant from the Army, because they'd been out on some operation, they come back, and all their stuff's gone. Not all their stuff, but a lot of their stuff's gone. And they know what happened. So the first sergeant from the Army comes over, and he's chewing out our guy, and our first sergeant. And he was mean to us, but he wasn't going to, you know, it's like, these are my Marines. I get to mess with them, but nobody else does. And he told us to go. So he says, all right, get in formation. So we all had to line up, and this first sergeant from the Army, he's walking down. He goes, see, see, this is all U.S. Army, all U.S. Army. And our, my, our guy says, I don't see that. What are we talking about? I don't see anything. You know, what else, anything else you want to complain about? And he comes to me and he says, what's your name? I go, Lopez. And he goes, you lying, rah, 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 rah. And our sergeant walks over and he just says, you heard the man. This is Lopez. Get out of here. You're done. We're done here. So that's how we, that's how the Marine Corps <laughs> would uh, resupply itself sometimes. That happened more than once. Um, it was okay. We would not steal from the other Marines ever, ever, ever. But the army, yeah, we'd steal from them, and we did. So, uh, but it was there, just one base. We were right outside of Da Nang, and there was a guy named first name was Chris. I could not remember his last name. I'd like to find it. I've never talked to him since he left Vietnam, but he was on his way out, and he, for whatever reason, the uh, section chief of our gun, and there was about eight guys on the gun. We ran this gun. We operated this gun. We moved it around. We fired it. Cleaned it. It was our, our, our thing. And that's basically what I did for, for 13 months is I lived with this gun, the 105 millimeter howitzer, and, and I got to be a section chief early in my time there, which means it was my gun. I was in charge of it. But this guy schooled me. Chris schooled me on what I should know. And he was just like a natural teacher, and he brought... He brought it all right to me and showed me how you know how you aim the gun, how you how you raise and lower the gun, the, the tricks of the trade, how to be a good artilleryman, and uh, I learned from that, and and then and we made a couple moves sit after that, and then and at one point about I don't know how many months it wasn't that long into my time there, maybe about three months, and the guy who was a section chief, not Chris, because Chris had already left, a, a guy named Gunny Good, Millard Good. He was a section chief, and when he left, he told the CO, the commanding officer, that he should have Magoo, that's what they called me over there, he should have Magoo take over as section chief, which I did. And I was in, and, and, and it's where I began to learn about, I will say, dare I say, leadership and, and, and management of people and authority over people. And it's this thing that you and I have talked about is that leadership is something other than authority. Because if you can order somebody to do it, like in a service, it's not leadership. But if you can get them to do something that you can't make them do, then that's a different story. That's, that's, that's a different thing. And I began to learn that at that moment uh, in that environment. Um, I was, and we became very proud of what we did. Our job was to fire support for the infantry that was maybe a mile or two or three miles out. And our job was to fire support for them so that when um, 
maybe the uh, the Vietnamese, uh, the, the the enemy was attacking them, or or they would stumble across them, or whatever. We would fire support, and our goal was to try to blow up the enemy and not blow up our own guys. And that that was that. And there were times when that didn't occur. Well, actually, when the when the American artillery didn't fire correctly, and they would actually um, they call it friendly fire. They might they might hit some of our own troops, and we were very conscientious about that. And by the time I left, we became very proficient. So, uh, get there, Tennis sixty eight, and then we and then we moved all over the place. I mean, we I don't I've lost count. I bet we were moving. There's twelve months in a year. I bet we moved twenty times in the time that I was in Vietnam. Picked up and moved, picked up and moved. Now we're talking about six cannons. Each one weighs about a ton. Um, it's close to 2,000 pounds. And you had to pick, you had to, you know, we didn't pick it up physically, but you had to pick it up and, and uh, either with a helicopter or tow behind a truck. And we were moving all the time. And every time you move, it's like a circus. You come to a spot and you have to, you have to recreate everything, which means, which means we have to build a wall around the gun with sandbags to build uh, uh, protective bunkers for the ammunition, uh, and then we build some place for us to stay, and then we have to go build the fire directional control, uh, you know, things we have to do there, and then we had and we, and we had to be ready to fire right away. We had to be we had to once we hit the hit the ground, we had to get that gun what they call lay the guns means they had to get lined up so when we got fire missions, um, we could begin to fire right away, and we became very good at that. And I tell people. I used to make some speeches. I've done it recently. Make some speeches, and I'd say, "What'd you learn in Vietnam?" And some of it's kind of whimsical, but but part of it's not. Um, one is, you know, well, I learned how to fill sandbags. I got to be very proficient. I think I got a master's degree in sandbag filling because hmm. everything was was protected by a sandbag. We build these walls out of them and our hooches out of them and everything else. And um, and I learned. Uh, I learned how to tell stories about, about great adventures that I, that, that I had that I had never had. So, you know, I wanted to be, I learned to become a great storyteller, which, which served me well later in my political world. Um, it's the art of the BS. Um, I also learned, I learned, I learned about proficiency. And proficiency is, is really kind of a, 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 a modest term for expertise or excellence or zen we learned to fire i learned to i my, myself and the other guys that's 10 little indians that came over there by the time we were there a few months we had become proficient in firing the o5 firing the gun which means that we were excellent and the longer we stayed the better we got and we got more confident in our skill and we became, we became to be a very, very, very well-regarded battery to the extent where at one point we were set up with some other batteries nearby and we were getting a disproportionate number of fire missions directed to us, called in. Artillery, or the infantry would call in and, and want our support. Well, the way it worked is, is that each artillery battery was assigned to a specific infantry group. And that's who they would call. They'd call us and we'd fire for them. In this situation, there were three or four of these infantry groups out there in the woods. And there were three artillery batteries back here. We were one of them. And 
we're getting all the calls. And it wasn't for 30 years that I understood what had happened. And I ran into a, uh, at a reunion, I ran into a commanding officer, and he said, um, I have some regrets about Vietnam, but the biggest regret I have is I never told you guys how good you were. And I go, wow, well, we're, you know, we didn't get, we were used to not getting compliments. You do not get compliments in the Marine Corps. You got your ass chewed if you didn't do your job, and you were supposed to do your job and do it well. So we understood that. That wasn't a big deal. And he goes, no, no. So he told me the story about the time we were doing all this extra firing. And I go, yeah, I remember that. That was a lot of work. And he says, well, do you know why? And I go, no, I don't know why. He says, because those other infantry groups didn't have the confidence in their own batteries to support them like you guys would support your group. So they would bypass their own battery and they'd call us. And I didn't have the heart to tell them no because I knew what was at stake. And I knew that if our other battery was firing, there was a chance that some of those rounds might land on the heads of their, of their own men, which is why they weren't calling them in the first place. And so I told him, I said, you know, Marines weren't looking for attaboys or pats on the back, but that we probably would have liked to have heard. That would have made us feel that, you know, we were, we were better than those other assholes because they weren't, they weren't as proficient as we were. So when I say proficient, I mean mastery, not just I've, you know, got it down to its basics. And I became, it was a wonderful feeling, and I hadn't really thought too much about it till later. The other thing I got out of Vietnam, two couple things actually. One is, you know, war is hell. It, it, combat is terrible. Um, and although I'm probably philosophically not all against all armed conflict, uh, I haven't seen any that I think are worth it, including Vietnam. Um, there's got to be a better way to, to work out differences than having people killed like that. And it may sound, I don't know how it, I don't know how it sounds, but uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't, pardon my French, there wasn't a goddamn good reason for us to be in Vietnam. Having said that, we went, you know, we weren't political anyway, but we went and we, we did the job. So the other thing I got from Vietnam is sort of this weird thing. It kind of goes back to the reason I was interested in the first place. Sort of test yourself. Can I do this? Can I hack it? And once you're there, you recognize that the, the test, the ultimate test is, are the other Marines going to see you as a good Marine? That was it. And that meant that you could hack it. That meant that when the shit was coming in, you weren't going to you weren't going to run away. You were going to you were going to stand your ground. You were going to stand your post. You were going to do what you're supposed to do, and you were going to work really really hard so that the Marine next to you doesn't get hurt. And you trust that he was gonna work really, really hard not to get you hurt. It was, it was a weird relationship that you were just a little bit, you did not wanna get hurt. And you would do anything you could to get from getting hurt, but you were just a little bit more concerned about your buddy than you were yourself. Cause you knew he was just a little bit more concerned about you than he was himself. And so you have that, you have that bond where I trust you I don't have to think, I don't have to look over my back, I don't have to check you out, and, and I know, and you say, and I, and I know you, you feel that way about me, and it is a powerful, powerful um, formula when you, have to, when you have to be in that kind of an environment. You trust each other, you can trust each other blindly, 
and you know you're going to be you're going to maximize your chances of coming out of there okay. You had to do your job. You couldn't run away. We had <laughs> kind of a funny story, but I think. Oh, I, I forgot. Yeah, there were, there were things I learned. Yes, I learned how to do the fan, sandbags. I learned how to tell stories about exploits that I'd never had, and convincingly. Um, I learned that this proficiency, and I also, I forgot, maybe my proudest uh, acknowledgement was, or, or achievement was, we were one place where the officers had a big refrigerator, and it was hooked up to a, a, a generator. And in that refrigerator, they had these canned, cold canned peaches. And I became an expert in stealing the canned peaches from the officer's mess and then bringing them back to the gun line. I prob- that probably put me in better stead with my colleagues than anything else I could have done in my 13 months of the Marine Corps, bringing them ice cold um, peaches in the middle of the night on gun watch. We open those cans up and we sit there with our, our, our spoons and we would eat canned peaches and drink the juice and just, and, and I got to be pretty good at that. I did that several times and uh, maybe my proudest accomplishment. They don't think to give awards for peach stealing, but they might want to think about it in the next conflict. The other thing I didn't figure out till later, and you know, I'm not, I don't see myself as a physical person or a violent person, but um, and I've never, I don't think I've been in any sort of a physical altercation since I came home from Vietnam. Um, but one thing about the experience you have, it's, it's this crazy schizophrenia. On the one hand, you know how bad the violence is and what it can do to people. And you, don't, and you abhor it. And you don't want to do it. But you also, there was also this sense that if I have to, you know, I can I can do that. I'm not I'm not afraid to 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 do that if I have to. If someone's threatening my family, um, it, and it's not that you prevail. It's like you would do anything. To, you just you just automatically go do what you had to do, regardless of what happened. And that's a scary thing. But the other thing that came along with all of that was, it dawned on me that later in life, much later in life, that that question that I had before I went about, well, can I hack it, was answered for me in the affirmative. And I've met more than one guy since then who trying to convince themselves that they could, but they hadn't gone through the same experience. They'll never know. They'll tell themselves. They'll, they'll, tell, they'll, they'll tell themselves they can, but not having done it, they don't know. That leads into my next point. Do you want to talk about um, the John McCain story that you tell? Oh, which sure. Which I find really fascinating. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I do. So, <clears throat> first I'll tell the story about Admiral McCain, and then I'll tie it in. It ties in with his son, John McCain. I forget his first name, but Admiral McCain, <clears throat> excuse me, Admiral McCain was John McCain's father in the Navy. He was an admiral. And he was big. He was in charge of all of the armed forces in the Pacific theater, over Japan, Vietnam, wherever we were. And it was not just the Navy, it was everybody. He was the guy. And certainly was over the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps doesn't like to admit it, but we're a branch of the Navy. Um, uh, I'll deny it if, if you ask me if I said this, but um, 
we were on a an operation late in my tour. We we're out on these hilltops, going from hilltop to hilltop, way, way north and way, way, way west. And our job was to fire uh, support and, and actually fire directly into uh, Laos and to disrupt the flow along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was a supply line from North Vietnamese into South Vietnamese, or from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. Um, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was, was a supply line and they had trucks and they had bikes and they had people walking and they would bring the gear that they needed to do to resupply the Vietnamese and North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong in South, in South, in South Vietnam. And our job was to disrupt that, blow up the, blow, blow up the trail and try to hit the, the trucks or the bikes or the people that were going down that trail loading supplies. So I don't know what the event was, but it was like the one millionth round or something that our a particular battalion, maybe, had fired. It was a ceremonial thing. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We're out there by ourselves, and we haven't had a bath or a shave or, or, a, or a you know haircut in weeks. We looked like a bunch of you know Native Americans out there, and so we hear that Admiral McCain is going to chop her into our battery and fire the ceremonial round of marking the one millionth round or whatever it is for this this uh, uh, occasion. So he flies in, and I was probably from here to the, t the tree out there, so maybe you know, 20 yards, 30 yards, my gun. And he, he just choppers in, comes over, and, he, and they load the gun, they take the pictures, and they got the guys from Stars and Stripes, that's the military newspaper, and they take the pictures and all that. And then he fires, he fires the cannon, and, and before, uh, before he's told when he's supposed to, and they had these jets flying over ceremoniously, and so anyway, when he pulls the thing, he came, he came way too close to hitting one of our own jets with the round. And of course, no one's going to tell him that, but we're watching them going, we would never have been able to fire that cannon under those circumstances. And then I'll never forget also, he's, he's, and so there's a sergeant in charge of that gun. And so he signals for this Marine, a Lieutenant Colonel, and he comes running over, he's got this big leather attache case and McCain, and McCain opens it up, and he pulls out this giant cigar, and he hands it to the sergeant in our unit, and then and then they close the thing. And we all laughed at that. We thought that was funny that an admiral could have a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps walk around with him and just hand him his cigars out of his own little cigar attaché case. We thought that was pretty funny. The other part of the McCain story, though, has to do with his son. Because at the time that Admiral McCain was coming to see us, his son was in a um, prisoner of war camp, a, a prison. He was a prisoner uh, as a POW, prisoner of war, in North, Viet in North Vietnam. In the, they, I think it might have been the Hanoi Hilton, which was a, a euphemism for a terrible, terrible place for the prisoners of war. The, the airmen who got shot down over North Vietnam were, were imprisoned and they were tortured. When he ejected out of his plane, he broke his shoulders, or his, or his, or his uh, he broke his shoulders, I think, or his collarbone, or something, and he fell into a lake. And when the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese got him, they beat him with sticks and made it worse. They took him in, they they tortured him, and then they put him into his bed. So at the time that his father was doing this, uh, he was languishing in a prison camp. I don't exactly know when it was, but at some point, the North Vietnamese military people 
figured out who he was. That he was a son of John McCain, and John McCain was like the, the big warrior. And they went to him, they went to John McCain, they said, oh, we've just found out who your father is. And as, as a, out of deference to a, such a big warrior, uh, we're going to let you go home. We're going to release you. And he asks, well, what about the guys that were here before me? Are you going to let them go home too? And they say, oh, no, no, no. We're just going to let you go because your dad is John McCain. There's Admiral McCain. And John McCain says, if you're not going to let them go with me, then I'm not going to go. And he didn't. He stayed there till all of the troops, all of the prisoner wars were released. And I don't want to get political, but I will, as a Marine veteran from Vietnam, that when Donald J. Trump says his heroes didn't get captured, it's probably a good thing that I wasn't within striking distance of the son of a bitch because I'd have decked the fucker right there. Uh, disrespectful. McCain earned every reward or award or platitude or good or That's a man. And so I, I, I will never forgive that. I'm going to jump ahead. I don't know if we talked about this yet or not, but um, now I'll come back to that. I'm going to talk about the wall, but let's finish Vietnam. There was a time, though, from so when I first so when I first get to Vietnam, you know, you have to make an adjustment, and that was it wasn't easy. Then you kind of get to the point where, and so you're scared to death the whole time when you're first there. You're scared to death the whole time, but you're really scared, and then you kind of get acclimated to it. And then there's this time where you go, I'm going to be here forever. 13 months to a, to a 19... Well, I was 20 years old when I landed. I turned 21 in Vietnam. Um, and so you, um, you make this adjustment and then you kind of settle into routine. But you're looking at the calendar and you, you say, I've got 12 months to go or I've got 11 months to go. And as a 19-year-old or 20-year or 21-year-old kid... It looks like it's forever. You can't fathom what it's going to be like. And so I went into this special place, I guess. I call it, I call it, my, the, I call it the period that I went crazy. And it just it was like for self-protection because it was like, okay, I'm here. I want to go home really, really bad. I don't know if I'm going to go home or not. So I'm, I'm not going to spend 13 months, you know, shaking my boots. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I got to do. And so some of it was, you know, not safe. Uh, you know, you just, you did what you had to do and you didn't think about it. And I didn't get, I didn't get afraid again till I was coming home. And, um, when I was coming home, I'd been out. So I'd been out in this operation with these other guys that I went over with. And there was about five of us left in the battery. The other guys had been signed away. No one got killed, but they got they got transferred to other places. So about five of us left, and we're out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, this on this operation where the where, where McCain showed up. We, we really were. We had we had no gear. It was, we don't, it was it was just rough, and um, sometimes we ran out of water, and we wouldn't have water for a couple of days. 
and they bring it in by helicopter. Um, we're firing support for this uh, for this mission out there in the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, uh, Fred Browning, who was one of my, my my buddies from the artillery school originally, he comes up to me and he says, "Me and Red and Krinkovich, that was the third guy." Um, we're going out on the next chopper back to, back to the bank, the rear base, and walk. And I go, well, what about me? And they go, I don't know. They didn't say anybody. They said, we're going. So I go over to the XO, the executive officer, and I go, uh, Freddy's and um, uh, Krinkovich and Red are all going back to Anwa to get ready to go home. We got about two weeks left. And what about me? And he says, I asked, the, I asked the CO, and he said, no, we can't spare McGow or Magoo. He's got to stay. We need him here. I said, well, don't do him any favors. So I had to stay about another week of, before I got to go home. Um, and, and I forgot where this story was going. <laughs> you said Magoo. What do you mean Magoo? Well, that's my name. How'd you get it? So we're sitting around in, in artillery school, and somebody says, well, did, what, did you have a nickname when you were home? And some guy, yeah, they called me whatever. And I said, yeah, they called me Magoo. And this Fred Browning picked up on that. And he called me, he just started calling me Magoo. By the time I left, no one ever called me Corporal McGowan or Mike or whatever it was. It was, it was Magoo. I mean, the officers. That was my name. I didn't have any other, I had no rank. I had no, that was just my name. I had no other name. So. Oh, I know what it was. So I go back. So finally, I get to go back. And uh, we're in the rear, and the rear's changed. Now they've got, actually got their own bar. We didn't have that. And we're, get, we're fixing to go out. We're going to fly out on a plane, not even a chopper. We're going to fly out on a plane and go back to Da Nang and go home. We had a date to fly out. So we're back there. And sure enough, Charlie, they launch this attack on the base. I'm going, oh, this is great. And now I'm scared because I'm going home. A month ago, I'd have, you know, I'd have probably, who knows what I'd have done. I was crazy. But then I was scared. <laughs> we were in a ditch, a trench, and they're firing. They're, they're blowing up the ammo dump, or they're shooting rockets, and some guys got killed. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm down this thing going, this is crazy. I just want to get out of here. And, and then they blew, up the, they blew up the airstrip, so we couldn't get our plane in. And I go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so the officer comes around. He says, okay, guys, well, you're either going to miss your flight or we're going to have to convoy you out in trucks. And I'm going, oh, great. We're going to drive through Indian country to get back to the, to the next. It was quite a ways. So, yep, either that or you have to wait here so we can get you out. It's going to be several weeks before we fix all the, you know, the airport. And then you have to get on the flight. You have to reschedule you. And I'm going, I ain't got to miss my plane. So, Freddie and I and the other guys, we get in this truck. And Fred, will, if you ask Fred, he'll tell you the story. He says, he says, you got down in the bottom of the truck, you took a flak jacket and you put it down below you. You took a flak jacket that was supposed to keep you from getting shrapnel. And you put a, that around you and you put one over your head and you didn't move like the whole trip. I go, I was scared to death. So then we get to, we get to Da Nang and Da Nang is like a big, big base. And they put us, we're going to go out with our flights the next morning. So they put us in there, they call transit. There was just a bunch of, we were Quonset huts, they weren't even tents, Quonset, and they had cots. So we're in there laying down sleeping. And sure enough, Charlie, Viet Cong, they, they land a, like a 500 pound rocket with probably from here to the school, um, you know, a quarter of a mile away. 
And everybody runs out. And they go into the, there's these bunkers. And so everybody runs in the bunkers. And so we're sitting there waiting and, and nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And the, the guys that run the trance, they're running around saying, you guys are all going to get in the bunkers. So I'm looking around going, you know what? I've come too far. If they're going to get me, they're going to get me. I'm going to sleep in that cot tonight. I'm not sleeping in the bunker with a bunch of guys farting and everything else. I'm going in. I'm laying down. So I go into, I go into this barracks, this Quonset hut, and I lay down. And a guy comes in yelling at me. And I go, what are you, you going to do? Send me back to the front, you asshole? I'm going to sleep right here, get up in the morning, get on my plane and go home. And he goes, you're not supposed to do that. I can write you up. I go, you're not going to write me up. Get out of here. So everybody else slept in the barrack, in, in the in the bunkers all night long. And then, and then they came out and they were all stiff because you you know, there was no beds in there. They were just sitting on the ground. So I said, okay, let's go. Let's get out of here. Got an airplane, flew home. That was, that was good getting home. So, What else you want to know? Do you want to go through your daily routine? Yeah, and then I want to come back to, to yeah, so let's do that. Because um, I'm trying to, I don't want to miss any, anything vital. I've mentioned Freddie's name a couple of times, Fred Browning. You, I might want to pave the way. I, I would, wouldn't mind if you even called him and talked to him a little bit about his time with me there. We were real close. Uh, we were never on the same gun, but he was a, he was a section chief while I was a section chief. And, and we have... One of our one of my Freddie stories is this, and then we'll talk about the routine in a minute. It was when I had come back from you know the the front there or the outpost and um, um, back at the big base, and this is uh, um, before the uh, we got rocketed and and we were all hiding in the trench and all that. So another battery had taken our position, and they were new they were new to Vietnam and they were terrible. They were, they, they sucked. And so Fred, but our gunnery sergeant from our battery was back there. And so he was supposed to be uh, training this battery. And so finally he goes, well, let me, best way I can do this is to have a couple of my guys who are here show you how to fire this thing, okay? And uh, so he's talking to Fred. And this, and this gunnery sergeant, I didn't like Gunny Martin. He was always on my ass. Always on my butt. And um, so, I don't know what I'm doing, but I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm really ready to go home. I don't want to have anything else to do with the Marine Corps. I'm just up to here. Um, jaded, as they say. Salty, as they say. Uh, so, Freddie comes over and says, hey, you know, we've got to fire this, we've got to show these guys how to do with this particular uh, fire mission, which required some mastery of the gun and I said okay so you be my a gunner assistant gunner I'll be the gunner you be the assistant gunner I said okay let's go do this so we go to this thing boom 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 it's like again proficiency we just you know seamlessly you know fire this thing off bam 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 we get done and I walk away so we done in a fire mission so Fred walks he stays there and I've left I'm, I'm I could care less and our gunnery sergeant is standing next to their executive officer of the other battery. And he, he's beaming. And he slaps his hands and he goes, gentlemen, that's how you cock a cannon. This man would not give me any encouraging word if I paid him. And yet... The biggest compliment I got from the guy 
I didn't hear. The biggest compliment I got in Vietnam, I didn't hear. Until 20 years later when friends tell me the story. He goes, oh yeah, he's, he was so proud that his boys showed this other battery up so bad. They were standing there, their jaws were open. And so when I talk about, but I didn't, I didn't at that point, you know, I could care less. I wanted to get home. I was totally, totally done. Um, routine. Okay. So there were, it depended on who, who, how many people were available. They came in and went, but uh, a, there were six guns, 105 millimeter howitzers, six guns and a battery. And, um, and then we had what they call fire directional control guys. These are the nerds with the slide rules that would tell us where to aim the gun and what charge to put on it. But uh, let's say we get up in the morning. We were on duty 24-7. You had to have somebody awake on gun watch from about 6 or 7 o'clock at night until about 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and so we would, we, would, we would stay on two-man watches, but everybody had to be ready to roll out of their sack. And we, so we all slept around the gun, pretty much, in case there was a, a major fire mission that got called in. But in a routine night, uh, we'd get up in the morning, and you would, what they call, pick up the brass, which means you would go around and you'd clean up your parapet area. You'd take the, the, the shells, the, 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 the projectiles for the artillery shell uh, were in two pieces. One was the, it was about this long, about, about 18 inches long, maybe 20 inches long. And it was a 105 diameter, so it was about bigger around. Just putting your two hands together like that. Um, and then... Uh, the, the shell was heavy and it was either full, normally full of high explosives. It could also be have uh, um, white phosphorus in it or it could have illumination depending on what we were firing. But for the most part, it was uh, high explosives. And so the other piece of it was, a, was like a shell, the, 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 you know, the shell of a, piss of, of, a, of, a, of a bullet, the little, the, the, the uh, chrome, or what am I trying to say, the copper part. And that was where the... Um, uh, the gunpowder was that would pre that would propel the high explosive bullet. We'll call it. And it, was, it was called a round, and so there would have seven bags of gunpowder in this thing. So when they called in a mission, they would say, you know, charge three. So we would take four of them out. We'd throw them on the side. So in the morning we get up, and and we, when we fired once we fired the gun, you take that copper shell out. And you just throw it in a pile, and then the Explosive part would go sail through the air and hopefully land where we wanted to land it. So we'd have to pick up the brass, clean the brass. We'd have to pick it up and we'd put it some other place. We'd have to reach, restock our artillery bunkers, make sure we had plenty of ammunition, and that would normally require us going to get it and humping it back. A lot of hard work. Um, constantly, of course, we're filling sandbags. We're building our, our, our parapet, the wall around the gun is called a parapet. We're building our hooches, we're building the ammo bunkers, we're doing this, we're doing that. Um, we clean the gun with, with uh, um, uh, diesel, we clean the, clean the barrel out, clean the sides of it out. So we had to clean the gun, we had to pick up the brass, we had to clean up our areas. Um, and then we had to do all the things about our, our, our living arrangements. So we'd go get you know, food, we'd go get the, go get the sea rats, um, and we'd go get water, and, and then and then we would normally go. So most of the time we were we were setting. We're still setting up the 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 the, the base. So we'd be out in front putting up barbed wire and putting up 
uh, claymore mines to protect us so we could shoot them if, if uh, the enemy tried to uh, attack or overrun our position. So we had to build our own security, and we did our own security. The infantry didn't 